Amen. Thank you for that. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. Hiran was born in Korea and then grew up with the uh, uh, cannibal tribes in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. <laughs> Not quite cannibals, but uh, her parents are with Wycliffe. They've been there for 33 years as uh, Bible translators and just amazing people. So it's great to have you guys here. It's fun speaking here because I get to be with my family, which is so awesome. So thanks. They'll be around the back and floating around the classroom, depending on how wild Acacia gets. So, and she can get pretty wild, let me tell you. Um, I met, this is, uh, let's see, what do I have here? Oh, I have, I have Twitter hashtags. <clears throat> I have a vision for YWAM to take over Twitter in, in the areas that we are good at. And so I believe, I'm trying to inspire, uh, we've had four million people do DTSs. And it'd be great if they were all tweeting about hearing God's voice or about uh, knowing God or making him known or whatever. And so I'm trying to inspire DTSs around the world, second level schools that I speak in, to just take over hashtags in these particular areas. So if somebody, you know, is looking up, hearing God's voice, they will see tweets from around the world uh, quoting speakers, quoting verses, sharing stories and things like that about what they know about hearing God's voice. There's no reason for why we can't just dominate uh, Twitter on these things that, that God has invested in us. So I have a couple of hashtags here, worship and spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare. Uh, I don't know if, what your hashtag is for uh, the school of worship, if it's elevate or whatever, and then in the battle and fear sucks, um, hashtag fear sucks. <clears throat> cool. Um, it is an honor to be here with you. Thank you, Sam, for inviting us to be here. It's always a privilege whenever I'm invited to speak. It's also just a huge honor to have Marsha here with us. Uh, Marsha lives in Indianapolis, Indiana, and she's a, uh, a top CEO and, and a model for so many people around the, around the world, and especially in this nation, on, uh, on leadership and leading a company. And, uh, and I, the time that I spent with her, she just exudes leadership. And I just feel like I've got so much to learn uh, in the area of leadership. And I realized after spending some time at, uh, at her house this past summer that, you know, leadership isn't rocket science. It's just it's something you can learn and then apply and work out and make mistakes and move on and, and, and learn. And I, I just never really saw it as that. I always thought, you know, it was some kind of nebulous concept. Uh, that I wasn't really strong in, and uh, and yet I had an anointing for. But just after spending time with her, I realized, um, okay, there's there's actually just really practical things you can learn about leadership. Uh, and I would encourage you uh, during the break, or you know, if if you see her around on campus, uh, she's just here on vacation this week with her son Ryan, uh, just to kind of hang out with some friends of hers, Jeff and Johnny Cheek, and and uh, myself, and uh, the speaker in Jeff's school this week, Covadas. We all kind of know each other, and so it's just a blessing to have you here, Marsha. Really excited. Really excited. Uh, yeah, so this is my wife, Hiran. We met uh, over in Korea. My parents are university professors over there uh, at Handong Global University, and I saw her leading worship, and the first thought that came to mind was <laughs> something like that, and uh, I always say it was the greatest worship service I ever had, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I don't remember a single song that was sung, but I turned to my wife and I said, who is that? She's beautiful. I mean, turned to my mom. I said, who is that? She's beautiful. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, that's Hiran. And my parents had known her for a couple years. 
uh, before that, so they, they were excited about it, and uh, yeah, it was just a great worship time. It was like there was this light, you know, that just came down on her, and uh, it was actually a spotlight from the back, but anyways, it was a light to me, so that was good. <laughs> um, anyways, this is where she grew up, was in Papua New Guinea, and uh, this is her, if you, if you can't tell. Uh, she's the taller one from her sister. <laughs> And uh, so that's where they grew up. I was over here in, um, in Switzerland, in Lausanne, growing up there and here, which is, uh, that's the Sea of Galilee. And that's, you can tell that my brother is right here. He's got the glasses on, see, and then I'm right there. Uh, and then this is, I think, Corinth or Rome or something. And uh, this is Gideon's stream, you know, where Gideon uh, took his army. So my brother and I wanted to be sure that we drank in a way that we could fight. And not, you know, be sent home like a wuss. So we drank the right way so we could fight in his army. And uh, Hidan and I became friends. And, uh, uh, you know, I, take every dating book you've read and just throw it away. And that's just my encouragement to you. And then just do it the way that uh, the Lord leads you to do it. I think that's probably the way to go. Uh, if we were to do it biblically, if we were to date biblically, we'd send our servants out to go find a wife for us. But uh, I don't have any servants, so... <laughs> Marsha does. Marsha has, she's, she's sent a lot of servants out. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, I just think the Lord can lead you in this. And, uh, and, and when you start legalizing it, it bogs down. And I just encourage you uh, to just, just be free in your relationships. She did, came here to do a DTS uh, after we had met, you know, because she wanted to do a DTS, supposedly. I know the truth. She wanted to come and... <laughs> Spend time here. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sure it was a DTS. And, uh, and anyway, so while she was in Rwanda doing her outreach, I was meeting with this guy named Doug and getting a ring designed. Man, if you're, you know, if you're about to propose and stuff, uh, have a plan. That's a good idea. And, uh, and a little secret is that you need to give the woman a story to tell. Because um, for the rest of your life, people are going to be like, so how did he propose? And you don't want it to be like, oh, we're just walking along, and I just kneeled down uh, in front of McDonald's and popped out a ring, you know. So, you know, create a story, uh, just an encouragement. And, and Doug, Doug's cousin goes to our church, and when I wanted to get a ring done, I had no idea what to do. I was completely clueless. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, she's a jeweler. And so I went to talk to her, and she said, well, why don't you go to my cousin Doug, because he's, he's been a designing jewelry for a long time, and have him do the ring. So um, I walk into Doug's store, and, and he was doing a $50,000 blue diamond ring for, for Julia Roberts. And I looked at that, and I thought, dear God, I don't have $50,000. And so he turns to me and says, um, so you must be Derek? And I said, yeah. He said, so you'd like a ring? And I said, yeah. And I pulled out some pictures that I'd kind of copied from websites, <coughs> like Zales and stuff. And so I showed him some pictures, and he looks at all of those, and he goes, yeah, these look like rings that you would typically find on Zales and stuff like that. And I was like, <coughs> yeah, kind of do. <laughs> He's like, let's just throw all that out, and let's talk about Hiran, and tell me what she's like, and let's design a ring. And one of the things was she loves uh, plumerias, she loves the ocean, she loves flowers. And so he said, why don't we make a diamond that's held in place by ocean waves? And I was like, okay, yeah, we're on a whole different level here. This is great. When he started his jewelry business, uh, there was a YWAM ship called the Anastasis that was over in the port in Honolulu. And the Lord spoke to Doug and said, I want you to go over there and ask if there's any couples that need rings. And I want you to give them their, 
their wedding rings. So he flew over there. Well, there was 30 couples <laughs> that were going to get married and, and didn't have rings. And he went into tremendous debt, gave them all their rings, and, uh, and the Lord just blessed him from that time on. There was no looking back. And, and he became, you know, one of the premier jewelry designers in Hawaii and, and probably even nationwide. He just died uh, about two years ago, suddenly, from a brain aneurysm, left behind a, a boy, a young boy and his wife. Uh, and so, um, but he was a great guy, and the Lord just totally blessed his, his business. And I don't usually share this story, but uh, I was sharing it one time in a DTS a few years ago here in Kona, and there was this lady that stood up in the back, and she said, we were on the Anastasis, and this is my ring that we got from him. And Daniel Lehman has a ring that was designed by Doug as well. And Esther has one as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So just amazing. I proposed to Hiran at the top of Mauna Kea because I heard he get really woozy up there and he can't remember what you said, so it's a good thing. I'm like, honey, you said yes, I swear. (laughs) You don't remember that? Um, And then we raced down to the Four Seasons and had dinner there, and I kissed the single life goodbye. That's me kissing the single life goodbye. Bye. Bye, single life. Bye. Bye. Uh, Yeah, it's a great thing. Um, and then we got married here because this is the nicest temple I could find or church that I could find uh, out here. You know, when the veil was ripped in the temple, it was like the Lord said, I'm going to make the whole earth the Holy of Holies. No longer is the Holy of Holies just restricted to this little you know, place where the priest meets with me, but I'm going to make the whole earth the Holy of Holies, and I think Hawaii is a very special part of that. And uh, so we had our wedding right there. Uh, we had protocol where we asked the, the residents on that side of the island for permission to come on the land, and they granted permission, and we did a gift exchange, and uh, it was a beautiful place to get married. And uh, it was just a place where my brother and I would go hunting and fishing and, you know, camping all the time, and uh, so it was just a great place to get married. We had the reception right there under the trees um, with Korean lanterns and all kinds of lights. Went on our honeymoon to Kauai. Um, I'm part of this group of people that represent uh, Hawaii to elementary school students across the country. So when they're studying geography, uh, which a few schools still do, and they study Hawaii, they can email us and ask us questions. And probably the question I get asked the most is, are you afraid of the volcano? So, uh, um, and then the other question I get asked is, um, where do people in Hawaii go on their honeymoon? <laughs> which, which I think is a really cute question. Um, everybody comes to Hawaii on their honeymoon, so where do people in Hawaii go? So uh, we went to Kauai, just another island, and uh, when we came back from our honeymoon over the next few months, he done realized her stomach was getting bigger. That's her stomach, not mine. And, uh, and little Andrew was born a rock star, a partier. This is after a British nightclub. He's just, he's just partying out, and he really enjoys his shopping trips, and uh, he loves driving. And, uh, and just some light reading before going to bed. Um, <laughs> and uh, anything with water, you know, he loves that. Uh, so he's just, he just loves water. And, and if you can't find him, he's probably up a tree somewhere because he loves climbing trees too. A uh, short time later, Kiara was born. And uh, she loves her mother, as you can see. She has a shirt that said it. Um, and uh, so it's a blessing to have Kiara uh, as our second daughter, and she loves making different faces. She loves art and painting and drawing. And, uh, and then Acacia was born. She's our number three, and she's such a blessing, too. And uh, so if you see us running around, feel free to hug on the kids or whatever. 
It is totally fine. I have an application for dating my daughters because they're both still single if you're interested. There's some um, <laughs> questions up here in 50 words or less. Explain what the word late means to you. Um, you know, in 50 words or less, explain what do not touch my daughter means to you. So just some questions here. If you, you know, if I were to be shot, the last place I'd want to be shot is in the, here's a fill in the blank for you. Uh, and then uh, one of the questions I like on here, it says, um, uh, the one thing I hope this application does not ask is, and you can just fill in the blank there. Uh, there's a $500,000 non-refundable uh, application fee, so feel free to submit that, and uh, we'll give you word in about 30 years. So anyways, feel free if you want to submit an application. Uh, that'd be great. I hope you guys enjoy this island. Uh, some of you have just arrived for this school. Some of you have been here before. But just take time to enjoy this island. It is a beautiful place. Don't just get stuck on campus here. You know, get out and see uh, places and just, and just go around. It's so beautiful. We have white sand beaches and black sand beaches and red sand beaches and green sand beaches and, you know, pink sand beaches and... Uh, it's really spectacular, and the waterfalls and stuff. Just such a precious place, isn't it? Uh, it really is. Um, just a great place to see God's creation on display. Here I am swimming. Um, <laughs> and so somebody got a shot of this, and I uh, was kicking my legs in the air. But anyways, um, <clears throat> I just encourage you to get out and see the island. Uh, we'll probably have snow on Mauna Kea pretty soon. Yeah. And if we get that, then... Make sure you bundle up when you go up there. I think last time I was up there, it was minus 13 degrees or something. And uh, It's a beautiful place. Great place to see the stars. Um, it's just a little mind-blowing uh, when you're up there looking at the stars. And then they open up some of the telescopes for you at the visitor center, and you can see uh, Saturn really clearly and Jupiter. And I mean, it's just spectacular. This is the crater of the volcano during the day. This is that same crater during the night. So... During the day, it looks all gray and stuff, but then at night, you realize, oh, it's not all gray, it's red. And um, this is where the water, you know, where the lava comes into the water, and it's just a great place. If you can, um, you know, it's fairly affordable to take, like, some of the boat uh, tourist things where you can get on a boat, and they literally kind of sail around where the lava comes into the water. <coughs> if you have money, then just do the helicopter ride sometime, or save up for it, or pray to God that somebody gives you money for it, because... That's the best way to see it by far. And the helicopter just flies right over uh, the crater, and it's pretty spectacular. So I just would encourage you to take advantage of the place where God has placed you at this time and realize it's more than just head knowledge and even heart knowledge. It's also therapy for your soul <laughs> is a good reason for why he brought you here. And Hawaii is very therapeutic. So um, <clears throat> just really blessed to be here. We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare this week. Uh, I grew up around a lot of that kind of stuff because my parents were involved in counseling. My dad was the one who had the vision for starting all the schools of counseling in YWAM. And, uh, and so it was, that was kind of his vision. And then he brought a guy named Bruce Thompson into YWAM and told Bruce about his vision. And, and uh, so that's how that all kind of got started. Um, and so, you know, I've seen, a lot of, I've seen a lot of healing. I've seen people come into our house. I remember one girl, she came, she was so... Her parents called and said, can our daughter just come and die at your place? <laughs> and uh, my parents prayed about it and said, 
Uh, okay, because we had people that would come live with us for a week or two, sometimes a few months, sometimes a, a few years, <laughs> depending on how much help they needed. And so her parents called, said, can she come die at your place? We've been trying therapy for, you know, four or five years. We've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and nothing's helping. We've heard about you. You're, you're basically the last hope. So mom and dad prayed about it, felt like the Lord said yes. So I remember I was like six years old or so in Switzerland when she walked into our house. And I looked at my brother and I was like, my brother's three years older than me. Because this girl was so skinny. I thought if I didn't even shake her hand because I thought if I touch her hand, she's just going to break. She, she was so anorexic, she couldn't even speak because her vocal cords had all dried out from anorexia. So all she could do was kind of, and um, so that was a little freaky. And then, you know, she was just so skinny. I said to my brother, what is her problem? And my brother said, you know, well, she doesn't eat. And I was like, I mean, I've never had that problem. I was like, what? There's so much good food out there. And um, so mom and dad just kind of took her into the living room. My brother went outside. And we went, went outside and played, and about half an hour we came back inside, and Mom was in the kitchen boiling some water and dissolving some uh, vitamin powder into it. And, then, uh, and from that day on, that girl began to eat. And she lived with us for two years, uh, became spectacularly gorgeous, and I totally had a huge crush on her as a six, seven, eight-year-old. The doctors told her she would never be able to have kids because the, the anorexia had, had destroyed all of those reproducing... Uh, organs and stuff, childbearing organs, and she came and did her DTS and uh, met a guy, and they got married, amazing guy, they have four kids today, and I've seen the Lord completely restore, and she says, you know, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and, and your, dad's, your dad with the power of the Holy Spirit was able to do in 20 minutes what five years and hundreds of thousands of th- dollars of therapy couldn't do, and, uh, and so, you know, there's, there is real spiritual warfare in this world. I, when, I was in, I, when I was 16 years old, I told mom and dad, um, you know, what I wanted to do that summer. Was it to work a job or do whatever? And I said, no, I want to go to Amsterdam and work in the red light district. I had a little bit higher. There we go. Uh, I said, I, I want to go to Amsterdam and work in the red light district. And mom and dad were like, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> You're 16 years old. And uh, I said, no, that's what the Lord told me to do. And they were like, mm-hmm. So dad was like, how much is this going to cost? And I was like, "Uh, $4,600. So dad said, okay, if somebody gives you $4,600 just to go to Amsterdam for the summer, then you can go. And uh, so I went outside, and I was kind of stewing a little bit, a little bit upset. But I went outside, and I'm walking in our backyard. And our neighbor in the backyard, we could see him. You know, there's no fence there. And so he was cutting his grass. And he stops cutting. He comes over. He goes, hey, man, what are you going to do this summer? I said, I'm not sure yet. He owned a nightclub uh, down in Virginia Beach. And, uh, and so he said, uh, he said so, um, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm thinking about going to Amsterdam to work with this ministry team at the Red Light District. And he goes, that's a great idea. How much is that going to cost? I said, 4600 bucks." So he just goes in his house and comes out with a roll of bills, what? tosses it to me, and says, and says, you know, I just really th- think you're supposed to do that. He wasn't a Christian. I mean, he was, you know, he's like a nightclub owner. Uh, you know, and just completely messed up. But the one thing he did right in his life was <laughs> listen to God on, the, on that. So, you know, there's hope. God speaks to us even when we're non-Christians, right? I mean, when, we all heard God's voice when we weren't even Christians. So he already spoke to us when we weren't even Christians. We heard his voice saying, hey, you need me. <laughs> and um, anyway, so I went to Amsterdam, 
And uh, one of the groups that I worked with was a group of punkers, and they just kind of met in the kind of central square in Amsterdam. And, uh, and there was this one punker who had this like mohawk that was probably about three feet off his head, and uh, just you know piercings everywhere and stuff. And I really wanted to get to know him. He was from England, and his name was Martin. And I thought, before I leave, I want to share the gospel with Martin. Now, the Amsterdam base is next to the largest satanic church in the world. So you get a lot of weirdos um, in that area. And so we were uh, in the square, and I'm, I'm going down there. It's my last day there, and I'm like, I'm going to share the gospel with Martin. So we sit down in a circle, and as we sit down, there was this guy who was dressed in black and had black makeup and was just really freaky looking, you know, and he was following me. And as we sit down in this circle, you know, he kind of sits down behind me, and then he starts moaning, like, really loudly, like, that kind of stuff. And uh, everybody's kind of, and I'm sitting here thinking, I can't share Jesus while this guy's doing this. So I just looked at him, and I said, freeze and shut up in the name of Jesus. And I just started talking to the punkers, and uh, we had a great conversation. Martin told me, hey, you know, Derek, I want to give you a gift um, he said, it's a gift uh, that I just wanted to give you because we've really become friends. I want to give you the, the knife that I have in my bootstrap, and I want to give you my bootstrap, too, because I have razor blades in the tips of my boots, so when I, when I rob people, I don't really need the knife. So I just want to give that to you. And I said, Martin, thank you. Thank you so much, Martin. I appreciate that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this on when I go through security um, at the airport, but I appreciate that. And... Uh, and then I said, Martin, there's just something else I really want to do. And I, I just have to tell you about the most exciting person I've ever met in my life. And I, and I just shared Jesus with him. And he started crying. He's like, can you pray for me? He's like, I have a baby girl in England that I, I can never see because my girlfriend's parents hate me. And I was like, well, you know, maybe there's some things you can do to, to help, uh, help alleviate their fears, you know. Maybe trim the mohawk a little bit. But um, anyways, we just had a great conversation. And we start walking away, and I kind of get to the corner of the square, and all of a sudden I look back, and I realize the dude was still sitting there. <laughs> I was like, oh, I forgot to let him go. <laughs> He's still sitting there. You know, so I just said, you can go now. <laughs> and he just got up and started walking off. It's so bizarre, but I have seen uh, crazy spiritual warfare-ish type things. We wanted to do this concert at this stadium in Virginia Beach in, uh, in Norfolk at, at the, where the, um, the Tidewater, what is it, Tidewater Tides or something, baseball team plays or something. We wanted to throw a big concert there, but we really wanted to attract non-Christians. And so uh, we were trying to think of an artist that, that was a Christian but wasn't in the whole um, Christian music bubble. And, so we, and then we wanted to invite them to come but then challenge them at the end of their concert to share their testimony and give an altar call. And uh, we thought of the perfect person, and, um, and we knew he would be amazing at it. So we were meeting with the stadium management, and we were meeting with the guy, you know, the guy who's going to make the decision as to whether or not we can use the stadium. It's during baseball season. And so he tells me, he says, you know, there's no way that you guys can do this. He's like, there's no way. It's baseball season. We don't let anybody down on the diamond. The field is immaculate. There's just, it's not going to happen. And he's just sitting there, and he's just explaining to us how it's not going to happen. And suddenly the Lord just speaks to me, and he says, Derek? I'm like, mm-hmm. He says, whose property is this, his or mine? I said, well, obviously it's yours. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? Even Hawaii is the Lord's. <laughs> and so I said, it's, it's uh, yours, Lord. And he said, um, I need to talk to you for a moment. 
I was like, okay, Lord. Uh, so I said, excuse me, I just need to go to the restroom. So I go outside and I go to the bathroom. I'm like, okay, what's going on? He goes, you know, that's my land and you just need to go in there and take authority uh, because you're walking in my authority and you just need to go in there and, and get this done. I said, okay, God. So I go back and I sit at the table and all of a sudden these words come out of my mouth. It's kind of quiet around the table. And then these words come out of my mouth and, I'm say, and I said, um, so what time can we start moving all of our equipment in and stuff? And the guy looks at me and he's like, well, uh, the game's over. We should have everything cleaned up by about 12.30. So if you want to start rolling your trucks in like around 1 a.m. and stuff and start setting up, you could do that. And I was like, that's great. We'll, you know, we'll do that. And, and, the, and the people who were with me were just like, I, what just happened, you know? I realized, I mean, there is, such a, there is such a tangible spiritual battle, and I recognize that between, uh, between our enemy and the plans of God. I, I, I totally get that. However, I want to start by just talking about how not everything is an attack of Satan. Um, Satan is one individual... Uh, who's probably pretty busy on somewhere else in the planet than your bedroom. Uh, I mean, I just want to throw that out there. You know, there's, there's North Korea, there's China, there's, there's things that Satan's involved with that he's probably busy in. You know, I, the chances of him, um, you know, knocking over a plant in your bedroom or something, um, he's, he's just not that talented. Um, and, and, and he's a bit of a doofus. I love that scripture in Daniel where it says, Satan will be paraded through the streets, and we will look at him and say, is that the thing that caused so much trouble <laughs> as he gets paraded through the streets? I love that verse. So I just want to tell you, not everything is an attack of Satan, and, and don't keep giving him glory by attributing everything to him. Um, you know, we just say, oh, you know, the enemy's been so attacking me, I've just been getting like seven speeding tickets over these last few weeks. You know, it's just an attack of Satan. I just, you know, it's not an attack of Satan. It's, 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 it's the fact that you need to ease up on the accelerator. Use your cruise control or whatever you have to do. Uh, it's not an attack of Satan. By saying that, we're actually glorifying him and giving him credit for stuff that he's not even involved in. And, uh, and, and let me tell you, a friend of mine is the one who started the whole spiritual mapping thing. His name is Peter Boss. And he would go to cities, and he would spiritually map the city, and he'd map all the demonic things that were going on in the city. And he'd, you know, so the intercessors would know how to pray for the city. And he'd been doing it for years. And that's great. That's fine or whatever. But one day, he's in Bangkok, Thailand. He's mapping Bangkok, and the Lord just suddenly speaks to him. He was a city planner and very famous in Holland as a city planner. One, one time the Lord suddenly speaks to him and says, Hey, Peter, why do you keep mapping the enemy when you should be mapping me? Let me tell you, totally bowled him over. He was like, all this time I've been so focused on the enemy and what he's doing instead of focusing on God and what he's doing. And he began to just completely change gears. I just spoke on the Father Heart of God what was it, two weeks ago up in, uh, in Quebec in Canada? Had a great time. I'm so sick of negative father heart teachings. Uh, I just want to tell you, next time I hear one like that, I'm just going to stand up and puke. Uh, you know, so you, you had a rough deal with your dad. Get over it. Move on. 
But one of the things I did was I had all these PowerPoint slides about all the negative things about a father and how we see God as a result and how we treat people as a result. And that's all great and stuff. But then the more powerful moment that came when I was teaching was when I had three slides of all the positive things about your father and the positive things that it showed you about God and how you treat people as a result. And let me tell you, there was much more revelation that came because people hadn't thought of that before. You know, people say, oh, my dad was never there for me because he was always at work. Well, how do you think you were going to eat? The food of manna was just going to fall out of heaven? Um, you know, that worked for the Israelites, but that was before they crossed the Jordan. Now they have to live off the land. And, uh, and so I said, you know, I mean, your dad's got a job. He's working. He's trying to provide for you. Cut him some slack. And I think we just, you know, not everything is an attack of Satan. We need to, we need to recognize that. We need to stop blaming him and move on. Uh, sometimes we make stupid choices. Um, and we'd like to blame Satan, but the reality is we've just made a stupid choice. Uh, if you're an alcoholic and, and, you've, and you've stopped drinking and stuff, um, you know, going to a bachelor party with your friends um, in Las Vegas is probably not a good idea. You know, if, if you're a gossiper and, God, and God's, you know, God's kind of spoken to you about gossip, and, uh, you know, and, and you keep having to post things on Facebook and call all your friends and text them about everybody's life. You know, look, I mean, sometimes we just make stupid choices. Uh, it'd be nice to always blame Satan for it, but sometimes we neglect ourselves. We don't maintain relationship with God. This past Sunday in church, I just spoke about just knowing Jesus more. That all of us just need to know Jesus more. And some have been Christians for 100 years, I get that, and some are new Christians, but you know what? We just need to know Jesus more. There is so much more that he wants us to know about him. Um, it's like when you're with somebody and they're just talking the whole time and, and, and you're wanting to kind of tell them something about yourself, you know, but you can just never get in a word edgewise and you're just going <laughs> to, you know. Jesus just has so much he wants us to know about him. And, uh, and, and we just know such a little about him. We need to maintain our relationship with Jesus. Just maintain our relationship with Jesus. Peter writes, you know, grace and truth in abundance can be yours through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's through knowing Jesus more that you will have more grace for people, that you'll have more truth. And in one other passage, it says peace. If you're an anxious person, you'll have more peace if you can know Jesus more. So sometimes we just neglect ourselves when we don't maintain relationship with God. Sometimes people around us make stupid decisions that affect us. Um, that's, that's called free will. It's not called Satan. It's called free will. Uh, and they just do stupid things, say stupid things, say hurtful things uh, that affect us and impact our lives. Now, Satan can use those things, and, and, and the enemy can use those things. We'll talk more about that later this week. But the reality is it's that person's choice. And sometimes it's just their choice uh, to make stupid decisions that have affected us. Sometimes things do or don't happen because we do or don't take action. <clears throat> I love all the stories of God's financial provision and stuff. Um, but, you know, it doesn't come, for most people, it doesn't come while they're just lying on a couch, flipping channels, that God suddenly just graces them 
with the money they need. It's as they're out there and they're doing the things God has called them to do and they're active and they're working hard and, they're, and, and God can bless that. And sometimes things don't happen because honestly we just haven't done anything to make it happen. Um, if you have a need financially and you're not making it known, what are you expecting? That, that people are just going to fall out of bed one day and think he needs money? You know, this is fantastic. I love, and I remember we did this in our DTS too, and my name was the last name up on the list. You know, everybody else had gotten their money, and I had zero, I, when I applied for my DTS, I had no money. I just finished grad school, been working three jobs, paid everything off, and, uh, and I had not a dime. And so my name was up here in the full amount, basically. And the deadline came, and the deadline for the past deadline, and the past deadline, the extended deadline. Anyways, all those deadlines had come. And I had done car washes, I had, but the Lord just told me, everything that you're doing for fundraising, I want you to give that money away and don't keep any of it for yourself. So, I mean, I'm doing car, car washes, I'm selling stuff, I'm like, you know, speaking at local churches around the area and all the money that I'm getting, I'm just giving away because that's what the Lord told me to do. And I'm like, <clears throat> after the deadline passed, I'm totally questioning myself. I'm like, was that really God? Because I just like gave away pretty much the amount of money that I need. And, uh, you know, am I really hearing his voice? Is that just stupid or what? Anyways, I meet with them, and they said, Derek, we have to kick you out. Well, my parents lived across the street because Dad was running schools over here. And so I said to them, can I go home first and have lunch, and then I'll come back and, pick up and pack up? <laughs> so they were like, oh, yeah, okay. So I went across the street uh, to have lunch with my mom and Dad, and I told them, you know, uh, I'm getting kicked out because the money didn't come in. And... I said, I guess if, if I was just supposed to do like the first six weeks of the DTS or four weeks or whatever it was, it's fine, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it. And mom and dad didn't have any money either, so they were just like, yeah, well, you know, I guess that's that. And I said, yeah. And then the phone rang, and there's this guy on the other end. He said, is, is Derek there? I said, this is Derek. He said, um, I'm calling from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and you just won the Oscar W. Thompson Memorial Award for Evangelism. Oh. I said, the... <laughs> It was this really. <laughs> they said, no, this is, they said it again, and I said, the, the what award? They said, the Oscar W. Thompson Memorial Award for Evangelism. I said, I don't even know what that is. And they said, well, can you come out here and accept the trophy? And I said, no, I'm in Hawaii. And they're like, oh, 808's Hawaii? I was like, yeah. And they were like, okay, well, can we just send the trophy? And I mean, I could care less about trophies, you know. And can we just send the trophy? I said, I guess. And then they were like, and where should we send the check? There's a check? <laughs> I said, how much is the check? And it was just for the exact amount that I needed. But I'm telling you, you know, we have to be active. We have to be doing stuff. It doesn't just, you know, God, God is going to bless someone who's working hard, who's, who's being obedient to his voice, who's getting things done, and not just sitting by on a couch somewhere um, expecting God to provide. And so some of the reasons why he doesn't provide is, of course, we're not doing anything. And I'm just using money as an example, but you can transfer that to almost any area of your life. If, if you're not getting over whatever the problem is in your life, um, it's because you're not doing anything about it. People say to me, you know, I, I'm so tired of asking for forgiveness to God for the same thing over and over. And I tell them, well, just stop. You know, don't do it anymore. You need to make some changes in your life. Because otherwise, I remember the Lord told me in 2003, I said, Lord... I said, Lord, 2003 really sucked. I said, it was a terrible year. I hated 2003. And this is at the end of 2003. And the Lord said to me, Derek, why would 2004 be any different? And I thought about that for a second. <laughs> I thought, that's true. If I don't make any changes in my life, 
This upcoming year is going to be just like this past year. I mean, what's going to be different about it? I, there's some changes I need to make so that this is a better year than last year was. And so I said, okay, Lord, what are the changes that I need to make in 2004 that's going to make this just a year of victory and a great year for me as opposed to how pathetic 2003 was? And the Lord just began sharing with me the things I needed to do so it would be a better year. So at the end of 2004, I could look back and say, this is a great year. You know, so sometimes things do or don't happen not because of Satan, but because we're just not doing it. We're just not uh, doing the action or we keep doing the action. So I found people tend to blame God for things or they blame Satan for things that actually they have authority over. They have governorship over. All of government begins with self-government. First we govern our own life and then the life of our marriage and the life of our kids and the life of our workplace and where God has given us authority and life in society and nations and all that stuff. It all begins with self-government, how I govern myself. Now, for those of us who are Christians, you know, we believe that we have invited Jesus to take lordship over our life. So our first step in governing ourselves is to submit to his lordship and his authority. And, uh, but I found that a lot of people blame God when something bad happens or they blame Satan, when in reality they really need to do a mirror check and just, and just kind of look at, well, uh, maybe it's not Satan. Maybe there's some things that you did that have actually caused uh, these things to happen. And I found when it comes to challenging times, there's times when God tests us. There's times when God tests us. And um, uh, I never really got this, honestly, until just a few years ago. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But... Um, there are so many examples. I would encourage you, if, if you're bored and you don't know where to go in your Bible and your, in your devotional times, just look up God testing. Because it's pretty amazing. Did you know the whole story of Isaac and Abraham? You know Isaac and Abraham, that story? Hi. Um, uh, good to see you. Um, I've just seen, you just look like your pictures on your brother's post. That's how I know. Um, the whole thing with Abraham and Isaac is, was a test. Did you know that? Did you know that? It starts out and it says, uh, sometime later, God tested Abraham. The whole thing was a test. Now, why do we give tests in school? I hated tests. How many of you hate tests? I, I hated tests. Um, uh, my brother was a photographic memory, got, never got less than an A-plus in school, and uh, so that was always irritating. I'd, I'd get my report cards back, and it would say, Derek is a joy to have in class. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the grades are all over the place. But, uh, most of the reason why teachers give tests is because they want to know if you've learned stuff. They want to know if you've learned it, because they, they want to go on to the next thing they want to teach you, and they can't go on to the next thing they want to teach you unless they know that you've learned what you needed to learn. I don't know if you remember having missed a math class or two in school, or three or four, but, but when you get back to the next math class, you're completely lost, right? Because you've missed a couple math classes where they taught some formulas that you needed to know, and then you get to the, and you were completely lost. Well, you know, tests are to make sure that we know stuff so that God can take us to the next thing he wants us to learn. This was a very important test, and you're going to see in a second how this was such an important test. Uh, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, uh, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, 
take your son, your only son. Oh, only son. Where have we heard that before? Only son, only son. There's another verse in scripture. Only son. John 3.16. Right, God gave his only son. Um, Okay, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now we fast forward to Hebrews 11 where it talks about Abraham. And in Hebrews 11 it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Now Isaac was was the son that God had said he would bless Abraham through. That, that Isaac was going to be the guy that would give Abraham the title, the father of many nations. It was going to come through Isaac. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I wonder if Jesus, when he was going to the cross, was thinking, how is the father going to save the world if I'm dead? Because here we see, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned, and yet God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But listen to this. Abraham, I love this, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. The whole reason Abraham was willing to kill Isaac wasn't because he thought God's going to stop it or God's going to heal Isaac. He, he believed, because all the cultures around them were sacrificing their children, but their children were ending up dead. And so Abraham's thinking, okay, well, God's telling me to sacrifice my child, but I know he's promised me something, and he will fulfill his promises because that's who he is. And so I believe even if I kill Isaac, God's going to raise him from the dead. And, uh, And so in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And then it says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because there's nobody greater to swear by, so he has to swear by himself. He says, I swear by myself, you know, this is like my, I had a Greek professor uh, in college, and he had three PhDs in, in uh, Greek, Latin, and Egyptian hieroglyphics. And in his third PhD, he was, uh, you know, we just became really good friends. And so one night as we were just sitting there joking around and talking, he told me, yeah, he said, when I wrote my PhD paper, he said, I actually quoted myself. He's like, because I couldn't find a better authority to, to, to say what I wanted them to say than myself. So I quoted from a previous book that I'd written. So. Um, but anyway, so God says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And here comes God's plan that he wanted to do, but he had to test Abraham first to see if he was ready to be the guy who would be the blessed guy. (laughs) So it was a test. Look in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, It says, um, this is Moses and the people of Israel. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, heard the trumpet, saw the mountain and smoke, blah, 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 blah. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So Moses is saying to the people of Israel, God has come to test you. I want to tell you there are a lot of things that we attribute to the enemy and we get all spiritual warfare about um, and we don't realize it's God testing us. It's a test. Uh, Here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
It says, remember the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. You know why he led them in the wilderness for 40 years? We like to say it's because of the sin thing. That was part of it. But it was to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Sometimes God tests us because he wants to know, are we going to keep his commands? Are we going to be obedient to him? Are we going to stand firm when everything around us is falling apart? Are we going to stand on the little bit of rock that is left when everything else around us has collapsed? I remember one time I was, I was desperately needing a word from the Lord. He had, he had told me to go do something. He had told me to go to grad school. And, uh, and, and there were all these complications to going, and it was difficult. I just threw my Bible on the ground. I stood on top of it and I said, God, you told us to stand on your word. I am standing on your word right now. You've told me to go there. You better come through because I'm standing on your word, <laughs> literally. And I'm going to stand here until I feel there's a breakthrough in the heavenlies. And I just crossed my arms and I stood there, refusing to move. And then all these thoughts are going through your mind, like, Derek, that was stupid because how long are you going to stand here? You know? And all these thoughts are going through your head and I'm like, I'm not moving. I, d- I just said I'm going to stand here. And after about an hour of standing on my Bible, suddenly I just felt like this big bubble burst. And like the answer had come. And sure enough, um, everything, the door opened, all the gates flew open. I mean, I was able to go right straight to grad school uh, and, and overcome just a whole bunch of the hurdles to my entry there that, that mostly had to do with how fast I was applying. Uh, and they said they couldn't rush it through and all this kind of stuff. And Lord just got it all through in two days. And I was in, I was, I was in grad school. Uh, whether or not we would keep his commands. Are we people who stand on his word? Are we people who keep his commands above all things? Above all else? You know? Are, do we keep his commands? Are we, are we being faithful to what he has asked us to do? You know? That, just the things that he has spoken to us to do. Are we, are we being faithful in those things? Uh, I love the story of David's mighty men. And there's Eleazar, the son of Dodai, and his hand is frozen to the sword. Is your hand frozen to the word of God? I mean, absolutely. So when it says when they came and, you know, when they came, you know, they had to pry his fingers off of the sword because his hand had been frozen to the sword because he'd been fighting all night long and defeating the Philistines all by himself. And it's like, they had to, it's okay, it's over, it's over, it's over. They had to pry it out of his hands. Are you, are you, that, are you that tenacious? with the promises of God to you? Are you that tenacious with the words he's given you? Uh, are you that tenacious with, with you know, are you going to pass the test? <laughs> are you going to pass the test about knowing his commands and being obedient to him? Here's another one. It says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. This is David. He says, all these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. So he's saying, look, God, you've tested my heart and I've given generously and I've given willingly and with honest intent. And then he says, And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. It must have just blessed David so much, who had such a generous heart, to then see the people of Israel being really generous as all the money was coming in for the, the temple project. He's standing there, he's saying, this is amazing. He's like, look at all these people. They're being generous. They're giving willingly. They're giving with honestly. And that's because they're king. Lord, you've done so much in my life, and I give willingly, and I give generously, and, and I'm here now looking at these people who are giving willingly and, and giving generously, because God tests our heart in this area and is pleased with integrity. Don't expect any finances to come to you if you're not giving. 
Um, give and I will give to you, the Lord says. It's a law. So if you're not giving, he can't give to you. It's not going to come. And if it's not finances, if you don't have any money, give your time. You know, go babysit some kids so that the couple can have a date for once in their lives. Or whatever it is that God is speaking to do. You know, just give and be generous. Uh, with your resources, with your talent. One of, the, one of my favorite times with Marsha was just, you're so generous with your time. You know, just, uh, we stayed up one night until, well, one morning, I should say, <laughs> to like 5 a.m., right? And I had to speak at like 8 or something the next morning. <laughs> I made it. I don't know how. Well, I know Jeff knocked on my door, and he's like, we're leaving in 15 minutes, and I was still in bed. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, of course, I'm ready. But, I mean, we just had such a great time, and she was just, just sharing so much about uh, leadership and just, I was just drinking it all in. You know, it, it's, it's so easy to be generous, you guys. Uh, and not just in terms of finances, but in terms of who you are as a person. To just be giving. Uh, inclusive, not exclusive. There's nothing I hate more in this world than exclusivity. I hate exclusivity. I absolutely reject it. It is demonic. There is nothing exclusive about God. And uh, he is an inclusive God, and he was able to include you in relationship with him. So you better be able to include anyone else in relationship with you, too. Figure out how to make that work. And, uh, and you can be generous. It doesn't just have to be with money, but it can be in relationship. It can be with people. Um, and then um, here it says in Exodus 16, 14, I don't have it highlighted, but here at the bottom, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and to gather enough for that day. This is the manna that comes down. And then he says, in this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. Have you ever had the Lord tell you to do something and you've done it and it didn't make any sense and it didn't really pan nothing happened and you just think, what the was that all about? Don't panic. You're not an idiot. It could be that God was just testing you to see whether you'd follow his instructions. You know, we're just going to run a little test here while we're bored and and I'm going to tell them to do something, see if they do it. Yep, they did it. Hey, great. Because there's something else I want to tell them later on. And, you know, now that they're willing to step out and just follow me, I know that I can lead them to do something greater. Uh, so he says, in this way, I'll test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Um, and then I love David. He gets to the point in his testing with God where he knows he's passed a bunch of tests. And he's just like, God, bring it on, man. Bring me a test. Let's get it over with. He's like... Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord. I have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfaithful love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I want to get to the point. I'm not quite there yet, honestly, but I want to get to the point in my Christian life where I can say, hey, God, you got some tests, man? You know, because I'm kind of bored. I'm ready. So, you know, just you got some tests for me? Because I've, I've, you know, I've, I've been, I've lived in faith, I've been reliant on your faithfulness to me, Lord. And so let's just, you know, let's, let's just do some tests, you know. Um, when Acacia was born, I, uh, I wrote a little letter, a little uh, note on Facebook, like an hour after she was born. I said, hi, baby girl. Uh, welcome to our world. It's full of beauty for you to explore from interesting people and amazing friendships to Broad mountain ranges and sunny beaches, there's much for you to love and enjoy. So sing, dance, laugh, giggle, cry, smile, frown, pray, worship, crawl, walk, jump, run, love and be loved. Because this earth was created for you. I look forward to getting to know you. Your mother is amazing. You're going to enjoy growing up with Andrew and Kiara. They already love you. Our precious daughter, we're honored to be your parents and are so glad you're here. E como mai, dad, which in, in Hawaiian is, you know, welcome to the land. E como mai. Welcome to this place. Welcome in our hearts. 
uh, dad. And uh, there she is. She just uh, was just so peaceful. And, uh, and then uh, about an hour or two later, um, everybody had left the room. The nurses were gone and everything. And I'd kind of dimmed the lights because Hidan was just holding her and was tired and kind of dozing in and out. And I'm kind of dozing in and out because it had been a tiring day. And, and, um, and I kind of opened my eyes. And I looked at Acacia and I thought, something... Something doesn't look right. And at the same time, Hiran kind of woke up, and she looks down, and she says, does she look blue to you? And I said, yeah, I think it's the lights. So I turned the lights up, and she was as dark blue. I don't see anybody even wearing blue as dark as, as she was. She was just, her whole body was just completely dark blue. And Hiran said, she's not breathing. She's not, nothing's happening. And she kind of shook her, and a little bit of color started coming back. So I was like, oh, it's fine. And, uh, you know, your first kid, you're like, oh, no. Your third kid, you're like, ah, oh, they'll be fine. And, uh, but then she started getting really, really dark blue again. And so I went out and I got the nurse. I said, I think it's a kind of an odd color. I'm not sure if it's normal. Um, she's dark blue. And they're like, ah, and they jump up and they run and they get her and, and they put her on, uh, on oxygen. And, uh, and the problem was, was even though her color started coming back a little bit, uh, her chest wasn't going up and down at all. And she was never getting, even though the color was coming back, her oxygen levels weren't, weren't going up. And so the doctor said to me, this is a serious problem. He said, you know, sometimes babies turn blue in, in, the, in the birthing process because they're kind of learning how to breathe because before they haven't, they haven't had to use their lungs. And so, you know, he said, but this is much different. He said, I've never seen anything like it. it it's serious, whatever it is, because her chest isn't even moving, and it should be moving when we have oxygen going into it. And, uh, and he said, so uh, we need to medevac her over to Oahu. So we said goodbye to Hidan, which is kind of hard, because I was hoping she would see her daughter again. And, uh, and we got uh, into the ambulance. And at this point, there were two things that, that, that I said to the Lord. The first was, all of our children are yours. Uh, you have given us the, the honor of being a parent to them, you know, uh, and stewarding them through their life, but, but they're your creation. They're yours. And if you want to take her now, you can, because you're God and I'm not. Uh, I said, but if I did have anything to say about it, <laughs> I would love if you didn't take her because I really want to get to know her. And I want to just be able to enjoy a relationship with her and tell her everything about you that I know and then just see how you take her even further in her relationship with you. And I said, I, I'd really like to do that. But I understand that you're God and, and she's not my child. She's your creation. Um, and the second thing I said was, I don't think I can handle this by myself. <laughs> Uh, I just got to a point where I was breaking. I said, I, I just can't handle it by myself. So as we loaded her into the plane uh, in Waimea, I just took this picture, and I just stuck it up on Facebook, and I just said, need help. Um, you know, It was about a 40-minute flight to Oahu, and um, in that 40 minutes, I had almost 400 comments on that picture of people praying from all over the world. And, I mean, at one point I counted, because I'm kind of a nerd, there was like, you know, 80-something countries represented <laughs> of people who were praying, whole networks, you know, whole churches, whole youth groups, and DTSs, and all this stuff were praying uh, for her life. 
Um, one of, I have a friend who's a movie star in, in Hollywood, and, and she wrote, um, Praying for the First Time in My Life. Um, we get to Oahu, we're, we're um, in the ambulance, we get raised to the hospital, there's still no change in her, uh, and we, we get to the hospital, as we're going up the elevator, I, I just had this, this kind of a weird feeling, <clears throat> a sensation, I still didn't know what it was, I just had this like feeling, and I, I didn't really know, I'd, I'd just been reading all these, I just told Hidan to read them, and then we texted each other about how like we just couldn't stop crying, and all of a sudden, I had this, this sensation in the elevator. I don't know what it was. We, we get to the room, and the doctor looks at her, and, and they ran 46 tests on her and couldn't find anything wrong. Wow. And um, we stayed there for three days, just kind of because uh, they told us to. And there's one doctor who wanted us, wanted us to stay longer, and finally said, I'm going home, dude. You know, she's healed. I know she's healed. I think God just got way more prayer than he was expecting. So, <laughs> so he, decided, he decided, okay, well. We'll answer this. So we get back in the plane. We're flying back to the Big Island. There's this, this Hawaiian auntie sitting next to me who's probably 85 years old or something, just this old Hawaiian auntie, really cute, you know. And she looks over and she says, oh, can I hold her? And I said, of course you can, auntie. And so I gave her to her. And all of a sudden, the Lord just spoke to me and said, Derek, James 1.12. And I was like, what? You know, it's kind of like, is that my own thinking? Is that what's... So I thought James 1.12. And he's like, now. And so I looked it up on my phone, and it says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood that test, uh, or having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I think everybody in this room loves him, don't you? Did you know that if you love him, he has promised you a crown of life that you'll receive? And I don't know whether the crown of life for me was, God, this is your baby, not mine. You know, all of our children are yours, just submitting that to the Lord and saying, you know, you have, you, you have authority in their lives. I do too as a parent. I recognize that. But you have a higher authority. Uh, you're God and I'm not. Or whether it was just saying, God, I can't do this on my own. You know, I just, I just need help. <laughs> um, I don't know what the test was, but um, I just still look at Acacia as our little our crown of life. We, um, we hadn't named her at that point because we always like to kind of meet the kids first and um, find out their sex, for one, and then uh, <laughs> kind of meet them, spend time with them, and, 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 uh, and then come up with a name. And uh, we came up with acacia because that's the wood that the Ark of the Covenant was built from, uh, the symbol of the Lord's presence, and the wood that the tabernacle was built from. And we just felt like, you know, she's just going to house the Lord's presence. And uh, I just took a picture of her as we were flying back, and I was holding her in my arms. And then we got home, and Andrew was super excited, and uh, Kiara was super excited. And uh, she's just been such a, a blessing and definitely our smiliest baby. <laughs> just this amazing sense of humor. You can just see it in her eyes. She's got these things going on in her eyes, and you're just like, <laughs> she's thinking something funny. <laughs> I can't wait until she tells us what it is. <laughs> but, um, so there's times when God tests us. Um, 
And there's also times when we go through a desert experience. Uh, not a dessert experience. Uh, I love dessert experiences. <laughs> desert experiences, not so much. But there's times when we go through a desert experience. And what time should we break? Should we break now? Let's break now, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about desert experiences, okay? I just want to give that back to you. Um, cool. So there are times when we go through desert experiences, and I want to talk about that uh, for a second. I was driving from Las Vegas to Salt Lake City. Has anybody driven that stretch, Las Vegas to Salt Lake City? You pass a sign that you don't want to miss. It, it's this sign right here. It says, next gas, uh, 111 miles. And then one mile later, there's another sign that you also don't want to miss, and it says, next gas, 110 miles. <laughs> and uh, something else they could put on the sign would be something like, you're not going to see anything but this, you know, um, for a lot. There's, there's no gas stations between that sign and, um, and the next gas station 110 miles away. So you see a lot of this for, like, hours. And uh, something that goes through your mind, uh, the first is, of course, I have enough gas. Hope I have enough gas. And after that, you often begin to think about deserts, because you're just looking at this stuff, and, and deserts are going through your mind. I want to talk about desert experiences uh, for a second. I think desert experiences in our relationship with God are, are often viewed as, as kind of bad times, challenging times. Um, but I want to show you something as, as we talk about deserts. Deserts actually make up one-third of the Earth's surface. One-third of the Earth's surface is, uh, is made up of deserts. Deserts are any region on Earth uh, that has less rainfall in a year than they give up through evaporation. So in other words, they're receiving less water than they're giving up. Uh, I want to tell you, when we go through desert experiences in our life, it's often because we are giving up more water than we're receiving. Uh, oh, is that good? You like that one, David? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, you would think that deserts are hot, but there's cold deserts too. There's uh, this desert here in Antarctica, and, uh, and these barren rock fields here never receive snow, even though they're incredibly cold. Up in the mountains further back, there's some snow back there, but the Antarctica desert doesn't receive any snow, uh, and even though it's incredibly cold. The largest hot desert, of course, is, uh, is the Sahara Desert in northern Africa, and it covers five and a half million square miles. It touches Algeria, Chad, Egypt, Libya, Mali, uh, Mauritania, Morocco, Niger, Sudan, and Tunisia. And... Um, you know, God's both to Hagar in a desert. There's a lot of great questions in Scripture. I love the questions Jesus asks. He asks brilliant questions. There's just some times where you come across this really insightful question in Scripture. This is the one that God asked Hagar. He said, Hagar, uh, where have you come from and where are you going? Boy, that's a great question. I always tell people when you share a testimony or something, this is the question you should answer. Where have you come from and where are you going? And this is something God, God wants us to think about in our lives. You know, not to just kind of be like a, a cork, and, you know, floating around in the ocean. Uh, he, he wants, us, he wants to have us to have a plan and to know where we're going. And we can get that from him. 
Just like as a worship leader, you know where you're going in the worship set. You kind of have a sense of what God wants to do. It's not just like a, you know, it's not just random. It's because you've practiced your instruments, you're skilled, you're good at what you do, you've put lots of work into it, you know, and, and you have an idea of what God wants to do. And he can speak to you those things even before the service starts. You have an idea. I really believe God wants us to, you know, like this morning, just have a moment where we encounter holiness, the holiness of God for a moment, and just think about his holiness. Um, so deserts um, can also be places, you know, God asked this to Hagar. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? And she answers, I'm running away. <laughs> I'm running away. Uh, because deserts can be places where we run away. David said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert, <laughs> David wrote. I, I, just, I wish I could just get out of here, out of this situation I'm in, and just fly away and freaking be in the desert. <laughs> Deserts are not something we pass through quickly, although we want to pass through it quickly. Uh, it's a place where food is hard to come by. It's a place where water uh, does not often come. If you think in terms of our journey with God, deserts can be um, places where we feel like God is kind of distant. We feel kind of spiritually dry. We feel like we're going through this period of a challenging time. And, 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 and deserts can be places of turmoil and places where we also feel like we're being tested. And this is an important thing to, to think about in terms of our desert experience. Jesus was tested in the wilderness. This is the actual wilderness he was tested in, a picture of it. Um, uh, you know, the wilderness desert place is a place where we, it's cold, it's apathetic, it's devoid of feeling or emotionally exhausted. And often deserts are, are lonely places. And, uh, and I think deserts are easy places to get lost. Um, getting lost means we've gotten confused. Um, is this the way out? Wait, was, have I been here before? Where am I? And we kind of, we kind of can get lost during that dry period uh, in our life. We, we don't want to break down in a desert. Um, that's why we ask questions like, do I have enough gas? We, you know, we don't want to break down in the desert. The problem with breaking down in the desert is it leaves us vulnerable to attack. And the desert is not a friendly place at times. And we don't want to be caught in a vulnerable position in the desert. When we're in that position, we can easily be discouraged. The enemy can attack us in the desert. Um, out in the desert, the wilderness, uh, the Israelites were getting taunted by the giant Goliath. And we read on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Um, it's a breakdown of courage, um, is what, is what uh, dismayed means. It's a breakdown of courage. Um, when your courage has, has, um, is disintegrating, and it puts you in a fearful place. And deserts are often where we become dismayed and, and disillusioned. And as a matter of fact, of course, things can uh, die in the desert. Uh, they die because we become confused, disoriented, can't find our way, and, we, and, we, and things die. It can be a vision or a dream or all kinds of things that God had for us, plans we had, and, and uh, can die in a desert. Um, and so that's one option, is stuff can die in the desert. But it should not surprise us then that in the desert place, there's lots of storms like this one. This is, I don't know if any of you have been in a, have any of you been in a desert storm? It's not... Uh, let me tell you, I was in the Sahara uh, for, during a desert storm, and it is unlike anything I have ever experienced. It's a huge storm. 
Uh, it's painful. The sand just stings you like a thousand little needles hitting your body. It's a painful place. It's a place where you're desperate to find some way of blocking the sand from hitting you. Um, you know, you're looking for a wall or a rock or something you can just get behind to stop being stung. And, and you can't see the sun because it's just it's, so it's dark. And, uh, and these storms are super intense. Uh, here's, a, here's a desert uh, storm from a satellite perspective. Here's another one in, in the desert in China. Uh, it's, like, it's literally like a hurricane of sand. Um, these things are, are, are very intense experiences and, and, uh, and just leave you <laughs> completely not knowing where you are. Because when the storm's over, everything that was around you is covered with sand. And you can't see the road. You can't see. When, when we were in the Sahara, um, you know, we were in a jeep that was being driven by some army guys, and when the when the, when it came, and we were just hunkered down behind the jeep and just trying to you know stop the sand from hitting our bodies. When the storm finally came, was over, and we're picking sand out of our ears and out of every you know all our clothes are full of sand and everything. And then we looked, and all around us, all we could see was sand. The, the roads were completely gone, uh, and you know completely disoriented. Had no idea where we were. We actually ended up uh, driving uh, for hours trying to find out where, where we were. But the thing about deserts, though, is that deserts can be wonderful places. They can be, be beautiful places. We can, deserts can be places where, where we meet with God. Um, you know, God met with Moses in a burning bush in, in the desert wilderness. And God spoke to the Israelites in the desert of Sinai. And God spoke to Aaron and the Israelite community when they were looking towards a desert. And uh, I've discovered something. In, in, in Luke, when we read about Jesus, we read, um, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. We know, we know that story, right? You know, this was right after Jesus got baptized. And remember, this, the, the Spirit came on him in the form of a dove? I've discovered there's so many times where you have an amazing time with God and you think, now I am ready to be launched, dude. We are going to do so much together. I am so stoked. Ministry is going to be awesome. Everything's going to go great. You know, that anointing of the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and it's just awesome. And so, you know, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus returned. And then what? He was led by a spirit into a desert. I've discovered a lot of times in my life, I've been just super energized by the Holy Spirit and ready to go. And here's my Latin salsa dancing music. I'm just going to answer this. Excuse me. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I found, you know, we get, we get super stoked in ministry. We're like, we're ready to go. And, and, and look at this, though. He was led by the Spirit into a desert. There's, you know, a lot of times we kind of think deserts are, are experiences we've been brought on by ourselves or, you know, things we've done or whatever. There are times when the Spirit of God leads us into a desert. And he didn't lead Jesus into the desert for a big rave party they were going to have that night. He led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the enemy. Did you know that 
there are times when God's spirit will lead us into the desert experience to face the enemy, and it's a test. We'll see that in a second. But it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Now, he goes through the desert experience. I'm not going to get into all that, the, the temptation of Satan and everything. We know that passage pretty well. You know, uh, he goes through the desert experience. But watch this. Look at this. We read at, in, in verse 14, after the desert experience, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee. Sorry, the spacing's off there for some reason. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside, and he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. What I want you to see is Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have Jesus, in, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit into the desert. And then he emerges from the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not with the power, but in the power. I mean immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Deserts as difficult as they are to go through, if you go through it the right way and you pass the test, you will emerge through the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you recognize as you look back at the desert, that was the best experience of my life. It was horrible. It was painful. It was dreadful. It was hurtful. It was dry. It was times when I felt distant. Satan was, you know, speaking all these things to me, all these temptations, all this stuff going on. But you know what? I overcame it. And I emerged from the desert. I've gotten through it. And I'm emerging now in the power of the Holy Spirit. She, her earliest memories are of her mother being beaten and raped and abused. Uh, 10, 12, 13, 15 times a night. And she would lie under her mother's bed as a 3-year-old, a 4-year-old, a 5-year-old, and just listen to her mother get beaten and raped. And she would just curl up in a little ball and cry and cry under her mother's bed as she just heard her mother, um, who was a prostitute in the Philippines, just getting beaten up and, and all these horrible things happening to her. And, um, and Malu... Uh, when she was about six or seven years old, she, she um, became a prostitute herself. And she was uh, standing on a street corner in, in Manila in the Philippines. And, uh, and she was about 13 at that point. And she had gotten, her pimp had kicked her out because all of her body was so used up. He said, you're just not worth anything anymore. So he'd kicked her out. So she's by herself standing on the street corner. And this group of guys, a group of people walk past her, and this guy just stops, and she says, do you want me? I'm very cheap. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not here actually for that. He said, I do have a question for you, though. He said, has anybody ever told you about Jesus? And she said, no, I don't know who that is. And he said, really? You've never heard about Jesus? And she said, no. And he goes, nobody's told you about who Jesus is? And, and she said, no. And, and so he just shared with her who Jesus was, uh, letters to the Lord. It was a YWAM DTS uh, outreach team, and they realized about 20 minutes later that they had forgotten a guy somewhere on their team, and so they kind of retraced their steps, and they found him uh, talking to Malu, and at that point, she had just given her life to Jesus. And just moved by the Lord, they, they invited Malu. They said, you know, where are you staying? She says, different every night. You know, I just end up with whoever I'm with that night. And they said, you know, we just feel like we should invite you to come stay with our team. 
and just come stay with us. And uh, we just want to make, you know, make you part of everything we're doing. And so they just took her in for the, the remaining month and a half they were there. And then they got her hooked up with some really strong believers in that area. And for the next few years, she just kind of got discipled by them. And she came here and did her DTS. The amazing thing about Malu is when you, when you talk to her and you ask her, Malu, do you ever wish you would have grown up in a normal family or that you would have had known who your dad was or that you wouldn't have had those horrible nights when you were a child listening to your mother being beaten and raped? Do you ever, do you ever wish you would have just had a different life? She says, oh, no. Oh, no, absolutely not. She says, you know the story that Jesus tells where he says there's, there's two people who owe the master money and one was forgiven lots, <clears throat> the other one was forgiven little. And, and he says, which one will love the master more? She said, I'm the guy who owed a lot. She said, I, I, you know, she said, I have such a deep, intimate love for God because of how much he's brought me through. She said, I wouldn't trade my family for anything. I have no regrets. I remember just hearing her say that. And when she shares her story, I've never seen anybody share it so pain-free before. She shares her story, and she's just glowing. Do you want to see a picture of her? Um, I'll show you one. Let's see. Pictures. Molly. Um, I've just seen nobody uh, share their story so pain-free before. When she shares her story, she's just glowing and so happy. And, and you think, is it possible that she's gone through everything that she's just gone through? Because it's just so amazing. But the restoration of God is so complete. And, and she has no regrets. I love that verse where it says, you know, um, that godly sorrow brings about repentance and leaves no regrets. I never really understood that verse until I, until I met Malu. Um, but it's possible for us to go through desert experiences, to go through difficult times in our lives, to go through trying times in our lives, and actually end up in a place where we have no regrets. And the reason we're able to end up in a place where we have no regrets is because we have emerged from the desert under the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, here we go. Let's see. Can we get that up on there? Just uh, some technology music here for a second. And then there's Malu there today. <clears throat> she has, she's married and has three kids as well. The doctors told her the same thing. You'll never be able to have kids because of how brutalized your body was as a child. Um, you know, it's possible for us to go through these desert experiences and emerge in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we realize is deserts can be beautiful places. They can be beautiful places. But what happens if we're in the middle of a desert experience and something just makes us so angry that, you know, we just want to kill someone? <laughs> what happens when we go through these experiences and, and we're just, you know, we're, we're just really angry at people? The, the, the thing that sometimes people make a mistake of is they want to blame this on the enemy too. You know, but anger was created by God. And, um, and he created anger so we would get angry about issues of injustice. Because it's good to get angry about issues of injustice. We should get angry about injustice and the effects of sin and that sin is having on us. One of the reasons why we have such a hard time with anger, though, and the anger of God, is because we have bad examples of anger all around us. 
And so, you know, when we read that God gets angry in the Bible, we're like, God gets angry. And we start freaking out because the examples of anger that we've seen aren't good examples of anger. We see people beating up their wives or we see people murdering somebody or we see people just, you know, treating other people like crap or whatever. And all those examples of anger to us have just been such bad examples that we struggle with the anger of God in Scripture. Let me tell you, you will never understand the love of God. Are you ready for this? You will never understand the love of God unless you can understand the judgment and wrath of God as much as you understand his father heart. As long as you're just concentrating on the grace of God and the father heart of God and la 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 stuff, which is great, and I love it, and it's been transformational for me, that's great, but that's not the whole picture of God. You need to understand his judgment and wrath. Somebody, well, Joy Dawson prophesied that to our mission in 2000 and said this mission is very good at understanding the father heart of God and the accepting love of God because he accepts us because he has made us. But we have yet to really understand the approving love of God. Does he approve of what we're doing? And have we embraced his judgment and wrath? And so when she prophesied that over the mission in 2000 at the Hui in New Zealand, I just kind of dedicated the next few years to studying the judgment and wrath of God. And it was such a wonderful experience. <laughs> uh, you just, you know, the judgment and wrath of God is such a beautiful thing. It's also an expression of his love. And it comes from the Genesis 6, 6 verse, right? That God looked at the world and he was grieved and, and his heart was filled with pain. And if you don't understand that about God, the brokenheartedness of God, then you don't really understand uh, his judgment of wrath. And it's something we can all really work on. What happens if something bad happens that makes us really angry at God and even at people? Well, <clears throat> I love looking at the Psalms for this. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but the Psalms are just a beautiful uh, place to go. You know, the Psalms, there's like Psalms of um, prosperity. You know, in Psalm 1 it says, you know, uh, the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on it day and night. And he says, um, in all that he does, he prospers. I love that. I don't know about you, but that, I'd like that. You know, in all that I do, I prosper. That's fantastic. Every aspect of my life, prosperity. That's good. Um, and then there's, you know, psalms of, like, psalms of hope. This is beautiful, too. You know, um, that our hope is in the Lord. That's great. And then there's psalms of joy. That's nice. I like joy. Um, you know, in your presence is fullness of joy. I like that. You know, fullness of joy. You know, there's another one that says, you know, abundance of joy. You know, like, we're just full of joy. We're, so, we're just stuffed with joy. Like, we can't even eat, like, another joy bite because we're just so joyful all the time, you know. And then there's like, you know, psalms of trust in God. Those are nice. I like those psalms too. Those are great. Reading through those psalms just always kind of bring encouragement, you know. Um, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's songs that say, there's psalms that say, you know, in God I trust. That, that If you're American, it's on our money. In God we trust. That doesn't come from, that actually comes from the psalms. I don't know if you knew that or not. But in God we trust. Uh, I should not be afraid. And then he says, what can man do to me, you know. Well, man can do a lot to us. You know, I read that and I think, you know, man can pull out our hair and our fingernails and stomp on us and kick us around and abuse us and hurt us. But anyways, uh, you know, um, that's nice. I mean, what can man do to me? Yes. Yeah, uh, and then there's, you know, there's psalms like, uh, like this one here, you know, psalms of peace. I like peace. I don't know about you, but Psalm 3711, you know, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. That's nice. Um, I love peace. There's, there's ones like this one. I love this psalm. It says, you know, uh, Oh God, break their teeth in their mouths. 
tear out the fangs of those lions, let them vanish like water that flows away. And when they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts as it moves along. You know, beautiful, beautiful uh, <laughs> devotional psalm there. I like the one that says, you know, dash their children's heads upon the rocks. That's a nice picture. Let their creditors come and seize all that they have. You know, it says in Psalm 109, you know, and let their, you know, let their children grow up orphans. You know, that's nice. That's, that's a nice blessing that David writes as he's sitting there reflecting on the goodness of God. Now, you know, we can call those psalms the beautiful psalms of God, you know, blood, guts, and revenge. And, you know, the, the funny thing is we don't hear very many sermons from those psalms, do we? Uh, it's kind of like, you know, the idea, oh, if we were in an Anglican church, we'd say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, amen. So why don't we say that together? This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, amen. Yeah. Uh, including Psalm 109. Now, the thing is, is a lot of Christians say, well, we shouldn't, you know, preach from that passage because Christians should not use these psalms because Christians ought not to feel this way. Well, whatever, but what happens when you feel this way? <laughs> because the reality is there's a lot of times when we feel this way. Well, there's three things that we can do with our desire for vengeance uh, and our anger, and, and I just want to list them out uh, for you. There's three things that we can do with, with the feeling or desire for vengeance and anger and all that stuff. The first thing that we can do is act it out. You know, kill the person. Uh, or at least beat them up, maybe burn their car, slash their tires, you know. There was a story in Honolulu about this guy who um, set his dad's truck on fire because he was mad at his dad. Um, you know, you can act it out. <clears throat> I don't recommend this one. It could, end you, it could, it could land you up in jail, um, you know. So that's probably not a good idea. The, the second thing you can do is deny it. Deny it. This, this is almost as bad as acting it out. Uh, because what it means is you're suppressing it and pretending it's not there and it will surface in all these other areas in your life. Uh, through all kinds of addictions, through all kinds of stuff, how you treat people, how you lead people, even in the context of worship leaders, how you lead your team. Uh, it'll, all, it'll all ooze out. <laughs> uh, and I've met people that have had horrible things happen to them and I'm like, aren't you angry about that? They're like, oh, no, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. <laughs> no, I'm not angry about that. And I'm sitting there thinking, you're not normal. You should be angry about that. What happened to you was horrible. You know? And they're like, oh, no. Hey, you know. Because over the years, they've just learned to not be angry. Because anger is so, you know, vulgar. And so they just suppress it. And I'm telling you, that is so unhealthy. As a matter of fact, you want to hear something? Depression is always unresolved anger. My parents have been doing marriage and family counseling for 40 years. They're the most talented counselors I know. Dad was a psychologist in Canada. He was a juvenile delinquent specialist. They're very talented. They're professors over in Korea now. And, and they say, they've told me that anger is always, I mean, depression is always unresolved anger. Whenever, they, whenever God wants to set people free from depression, my parents just walk them through you know, what are you angry about? And, and sometimes it takes them back to when they were three years old and something happened that they never were, felt they were able to express their anger about. Um, and so, so, you know, as you repress it, even as a child, you've just learned to kind of repress it and deny it and not express it, 
uh, it begins to resurface in all kinds of areas in your life. Let me tell you something about God. Can I just tell you something about God? God is not interested in managing your anger. He wants to set you free from it. God is not interested in managing your crap. He wants to set you free from it. God isn't interested in managing your gossip. He wants to set you free from it. God isn't interested in managing your greed. He wants to set you free from it. God isn't interested in managing your lust. He wants to set you free from it. Whatever it is you struggle with, God is not interested in giving you management tools. He wants to set you free from it. That's why Jesus died on the cross, was to see you set free, not so you could manage your craft. He wants to set you free from it. So denying it is not a healthy thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, God gave us the emotion of anger so we could understand just a little bit of how he feels when injustice happens, which happened to Jesus hanging on the cross who hadn't done anything wrong, you know. Uh, the third thing you can do with your anger is you can surrender it to God and give it to him. Surrender it to God and give it to him. This is why I think those psalms that I just kind of quoted from at the end, Psalm 109 and Psalm 58, are such wonderful psalms. <laughs> I think they're great. Because you think about David having to write. You know, he, he didn't just like whip something off on his laptop or just, you know, you know, text, you know, text himself a message. When he wrote a psalm, he had to sit down. He had to get the parchment. He had to light the light or whatever. You know, the flame had to make sure it had enough fuel in there so the flame would burn so, or the candle or whatever he was using. He had to get out the quill, the ink. I mean, it's a long process. By the time he had finished writing those psalms, I think that they, that, that they were actually titled, you know, a moment of therapy <laughs> between David and God. I think David just wrote down exactly what he was feeling. I wish that you would just... He just writes it all down. Expressed it. The Bible gives us a couple of keys about expressing anger. Three important things. The first thing that it says about anger, and this comes from Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. It says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Wow, that already... <laughs> That already gives us a completely different picture of an expression of anger. In other words, people shouldn't be hurt. Uh, you shouldn't be self-destroyed. There should be no, no sin when you express your anger. Expressing anger in itself is not a sin. But hurting people or smashing things, all this kind of stuff, uh, it's a sin. Uh, so in your anger, do not sin. Uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Boy, this is a big one. If you hold on to anger for even more than a day, it is going to have take root in your life. You're going to—it's bitterness, unforgiveness, you know, rage, uh, all these things that come up as a result of holding on to anger for even more than a day. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The third thing is. Do not give the devil a foothold. Because here's what the verse says. Now, we're talking about spiritual warfare, remember. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. That's exactly what the verse says. I just quoted it verbatim. In other words, you know, we talk about spiritual warfare. Uh, one of the ways a devil gets a foothold into our lives is because we have been holding on to anger. It's not, it's not his fault. We have given permission 
for him to ravage our lives because we have either, you know, sinned in our anger and we're holding on to it. And we want to blame Satan for whatever the problems are in our lives when the reality is we're giving him footholds. I'll give you an example. I was leading a DTS in Lausanne, and, uh, you know, we had Young Shin and I were co-leading it, actually. And, and Young Shin's great. I don't know how many of you know her, but she's amazing. And, uh, and she was very experienced as a leader. Uh, I'd never led one before, so it just made a great uh, synergy as we led together. Our first two weeks, we had Lauren and Darlene speaking. Uh, Lauren, you know, the founder of YWAM and, and his wife, Darlene. And so we had them speaking for the first two weeks. Well, we had the worship time, powerful, amazing, people crying, God speaking, great worship time. Uh, and I'm just saying that because I just want you to understand the authority that Lauren walks in. He, he gets up and he, well, actually sat down because he was tired. And we, so we had a table up there that he could just teach from. So he sits down and he says, Acts 128 says, you shall be my witnesses. You know, you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witness. Okay. He says, Acts, as soon as he says, Acts, <laughs> like as soon as the word comes out of his mouth, first, first word he said, Acts, as soon as he says that, this guy in the back corner just jumps up, ah, throws his chair through the window, stomps out through the door and just starts smashing everything out in the lobby. And I can hear this thump, 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 and he's just, just, just demonic, out of control rage. And I looked at Young Shin and I said, you know, and Young Shin's like, uh, you out. And, I, and there was this big Tongan guy sitting next to me. So I said, hey, bro, you, I'll, <laughs> I'll go with you. So we go out there, and we're just following the path of carnage, you know, through the base to try and find out where he is. We finally get to him, and, and you know, he's just out of control. Uh, and it was just amazing to me how we had had a great worship time. But Lauren, I mean, as soon as the first word came out of his mouth, those demons just could not stand to be in his presence. I mean, they just, they just could not take it. And so, uh, so I go, we, you know, we, we finally, you know, talked to the guy and we, and we said, let's meet this afternoon. So young Shin and I, uh, sat down with him and I, and I said, you know, um, this morning, you know, a little bit crazy, uh, you know, I got about 20,000 Swiss francs of damage that you're responsible for. Um, so let's just talk about the DTS for a second. You know, do you think that you can sit in lectures? And he said, uh, no, I don't think so. Well, that's kind of a problem. You know, if you want to pass a DTS, going to a lecture might be a good idea. I said, so, you know, where does all this come from? And so we just started kind of dissecting everything. And first he was blaming everybody. You know, we just kind of worked it all the way down. Eventually got down to sexually molested by his grandparents when he was a kid, ongoing molestation, and there it was. And I said to him, you know, you don't, you don't have to have this anymore. You can let it go. And you can forgive them, and the Lord will set you free from that. And the foothold is closed to the devil, and then we'll just ask him to get out of there, and he can go do whatever he does, but not in you anymore. And, uh, and I said, so do you want to be set free? And he said, no. He said, I, I kind of like, you know, going into these blind rages, and when I come out, everybody's afraid of me. So we, you know, we talked to him for a little bit more. Eventually got to the point where he did not want to be set free. And if somebody doesn't want to be set free, you know, they can't be set free. I've, you know, it's like smoking. If 
the first step to quitting smoking is to actually want to quit. <laughs> the first step to quitting anything that, that you want to you know, quit is to actually have to want to quit. You know? if, there's, like, if you love eating cheeseburgers and you, know, you, you want to stop eating cheeseburgers, the first step is that you have to actually want to quit you know, eating cheeseburgers more than you want to eat the cheeseburgers, right? And uh, the first step to being set free is to want it. That's why Jesus said to the blind guy, he's like, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, it's kind of obvious, Jesus, he's blind. Well, yeah, but what's important is, you know, he needed to speak it out. Jesus wanted to know, does this guy really want to be healed? He said, what do you want me to do for you? And the guy goes, I want to see. And Jesus is like, okay, great. And he heals him, you know. So this guy just didn't want to be set free. So we, we, we said, well, you know, he said, can I serve on the base? And I'm thinking there's two areas he can serve in, the kitchen or maintenance. You know, you got kitchen knives, power tools, kitchen knives, power tools. I said, you know what, there's not really a spot here for you. Uh, we're not equipped to be able to, to, to handle you. And we called a, a base that is very strong in their counseling ministries, and they're actually set up to help people like him, but they were full. They didn't have any room. And so eventually he had to leave, uh, and, and that was a whole other thing about chasing him down and, you know, all that stuff. And I said to him, I said, you know, I called my dad over in Korea. I said, you know, what do we do here? Because, you know, uh, he doesn't want to leave, but we need him to leave. And dad said, well, you just, you can't get into discussions with people like that because they'll just, you know, they just go circular and it just never ends. He said, so you just need to give him, you know, uh, you're going to be leaving in half an hour. You can either leave with the police or they'll take you to jail and, and because you'll be here illegally because we're stopping your visa. And, uh, and then your parents, whenever they come, can come get you. Or uh, you can go with one of our staff, and, or a couple of our staff, actually our biggest um, physically big staff. Uh, you can go with them to the airport, and they will escort you to your plane. So how do you want to leave? I'm going to give you five minutes to make this choice, and then you tell me how you want to leave. And came back in five minutes. He wasn't there. I had to go track him down. And he was in the, in the boutique hiding under a bunch of clothes and found him. And so he had five minutes. and. Five minutes was up, so he said, I'll go with the staff. I said, I think that's a good idea. We later found out that he had been in prison for attempted murder on a pastor, something that nobody felt to put on their resume. Listen, I mean, on, on, their, on their recommendation. Listen, you guys, if you have to write a letter of recommendation for somebody, be honest. Be honest. You know, don't just say, hey, I just think they're wonderful and all that kind of stuff, because if they've got issues and it surfaces, let me tell you, we called every person that had written recommendations for him, and we chewed them up because it was absolutely ridiculous that they would send a guy to a DTS who had those kinds of issues and had attempted murder on a pastor, and it, didn't, it was nowhere on their recommendations. And they were like, well, we just thought a DTS would be good for them. <laughs> really? You know, you didn't want them in your group, but apparently you want them over here in a DTS. So, you know, just be honest on letters of recommendations. And, 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 you know, if you feel like, hey, the person struggles a little bit, but they have a great heart, and a great, you know, just share that and say they're going to be fantastic, but like all of us, they have issues or whatever, you know, just be honest. Anyways, the devil had a foothold in that life, and, and he chose to not want to let go because he, was, he had held on that anger for so long, and it was such an issue that it, actually just, it, it had actually just resulted in, in demonic footholds uh, in his life. Um, when we give it to God, we just give it to Him. We had this injustice happen to our family about two years ago, and it was really, really uh, unjust. Our, our neighbors told us, Derek, sue, sue, sue them. You can sue them for millions and all that stuff. And 
uh, our neighbor at the time, their, their son worked for, uh, was vice president of one of the largest companies in the States, and he said, I, I called my son's lawyers, and they told me, you have an absolute case, you should sue, and, you know, and I, I was like, you know, Jack, that's just not, not really how we roll. Uh, but it was really an injustice, and I got into my car, and I just started driving, and I just, I just was yelling at God. I was like, we have put our life on the line. We have given up so much for you. You know, we're doing all this stuff. We're doing everything you've asked us to do. We've been obedient to you, you know, and this happens to us, and I'm just, just going off as I'm driving, you know, because it's a safe place for me. <coughs> Nobody's in the car, you know, it's just me and God, <coughs> you know, there's, and I'm just letting God have it, and I just, I just, I probably yell for about 20 minutes straight. I get back home, and I pull into the driveway, and I just said, God, I just thank you so much that, you know, you just could hear all that and that I could get that off my chest, that I could just get it out, and now I just give it all to you, and I forgive that person who did that to us, and I just forgive them, and I just let it go, and Lord, you know, you're so much greater than this pithy little thing. So just thanks for listening, and um, I give it to you now, and, you know, let it go, let it go. Yeah, you can just, you can just should we all sing that right now? Kiara will come running into the room. You know. um, but just let it go. Just let it go to him and just give it to him. If you need to do something physical, do something physical. Write it all down. Burn it. I like burning stuff because it just, you know, it's gone. Uh, I've written it on a rock before, you know, and thrown it into the ocean. I've, you know, just whatever it is that you have to do. The prophets did things physical because it was a manifestation of what was happening in the spiritual uh, you know, as they physically did something, there was, it was just a physical demonstration of what was happening in the spiritual. So you can do something uh, uh, physical and, in letting it go and giving it to God. We have to give it to someone. It's not just enough to let it go because otherwise it's still kind of in our mind. It's just not really, there's not, uh, um, there's not a um, closure to it. But when we give it to God, we know that he's taking care of it. Like, you know, that's why... Forgiveness is so powerful to Jesus because we can transfer our sins onto him. It's not just that it's some kind of nebulous concept, but we actually transfer our sins onto Jesus, and he's paid the price. Uh, so then what we discover is as we go through these wilderness experiences and we go through all of that, uh, we, we discover this amazing thing that David writes in Psalm 107, and he says, He turned the desert into pools of water, and the parched ground into flowing springs. This is a, this is a David version of, of Jesus emerged from the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, David's the artist, you know, the artist, king, musician guy. And so it's basically the same concept. It's, you know, he emerged in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus emerging in the power of the Holy Spirit. David writes, he turned the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. And then I like this psalm here too. To him who led his people through the desert... His love endures forever. And that is the most powerful idea, the most powerful concept in all of this is that um, to him who led his people through the desert, his love endures forever. Um, so there's times when God tests us. There's times when we go through a desert experience. There are times when we hit rock bottom and we really wonder about the goodness of God. And that is okay. Um, it's not okay to stay there, but it's okay to hit that place because I think it's an important question that we have to really look at. Um, you know, people say, you know, well, it's okay to doubt. I mean, you know, Thomas doubted. No, that's not true. Thomas doubted, but Jesus didn't leave him there. 
He didn't say, oh, okay, Thomas, well, it's just okay to ask a bunch of questions and be cynical and doubt. That's fine. That's not what Jesus said. He said, Thomas, you know what? Here are the, 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 the holes in my hand and in my feet. Stick your finger in there. You know, he said, look, it's okay to doubt, but God doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to bring resolution to all of it. He wants to answer our questions. He wants to move us beyond the cynicism, whatever it is. He wants to take us into that place where we really discover who he is and where unbelief is dissolved. You know, some of you might be sitting there thinking, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? You know, whatever. Those are fine questions. Let me tell you, God wants to resolve that issue. He called you here, so you're here. I mean, why would he change his mind or something? You know, it's, 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 that's the way it is in our Christian life, too, is we, you know, we're always asking these kind of questions, like these kind of dubious questions to God. That's fine, but God wants to answer them with, with who he is as provider, as protector, as, you know, all those different aspects of God. Now, I call this my real, uh, real questions by real people, because as I travel, you know, I get asked these kinds of questions. And they'll say things to me like, um, you know, well, they'll say things to me like, you know, is God really good? If God is good, why is there poverty in Africa? You know, or why is there, you know, uh, suffering? Or why is there pain if God is so good? Or if he's so loving, you know, then why is there that stuff? And we have to kind of look at their intellectual path for how they get there. Um, they get there because they say, they, I have problems. And then they sit there and they think, well, I mean, of course, there's other people who have worse problems. And then they start asking that question, you know, why does nobody care? You know, would it be so hard to help? Um, you know, or they might say, you know, if there's a God, then why doesn't he do something about these problems? Um, does he not know about these problems? Does he not have the power to deal with these problems? Does he not care? And then they start thinking, you know, I don't think I can believe in a good God or in a loving God. And they begin to think, you know, is God good? They might get there because they say, look, my mother was dying of cancer, and we pray that she would be healed. But then, you know, she died a month later. And they'll say things like, you know, uh, either God doesn't care about prayer, uh, and he doesn't, you know, care about uh, our prayer doesn't work, or else, you know, why didn't he answer our prayers? You know, because we were praying that she would be healed, you know? And they think God is good. They might get there from a bigger kind of a path. They might say, well, what about natural disasters? Or, you know, what about, like, um, poverty or corruption or greed or selfish politicians or unjust laws that are prejudicial? What about all these things? You know, they kind of look at these big kind of issues. And eventually, as they kind of just stay in that place, and that's why I'm saying God doesn't want us to stay in that place. As they stay in that place, they begin to harden their hearts, and they decide God is not good, and they put their angry eyebrows on. See, I, I put their angry eyebrows on there. Um, and they begin to say, you know, God is not good. And, and, and they begin to harden their hearts towards God. And then they become very cynical about God, uh, or cynical about these things. Yeah, did you have a question? No? Okay. Um, and Christians will say stupid things sometimes. Now, I was speaking in a DTS, and there was this guy who raised his hand when I had that slide up there about the mother dying of cancer. And, you know, and he raised his hand. He said, well, she's in a better place. You know, if she knows Jesus, she's in a better place. And I looked at him and I said, oh, give me a break. 
I said, seriously, that's your answer? She's in a better place? A better place would be here on earth with her children, seeing them graduate and get married and have grandchildren. That's a better place. I mean, whatever, yeah, she's in a better place with Jesus. But let me tell you, her children don't see it that way. And, and he just kind of like, I could tell he had just totally shut me off at that point. He was just really ticked. Crossed arms, notebook closed, pen on top. <laughs> just every physical sign was, I don't like you and I'm not listening to you anymore. And uh, I was like, oh, well. Um, so I didn't see him. I had to race out to lunch after I spoke. That evening, we're staying at the Go Center. Uh, that evening, there's a knock on my door, and there's this, this guy standing there. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And uh, he had tears, you know, like streaks. There were, you could see he'd just been crying. His eyes were all red. He said, can I talk to you for a little bit? I said, sure. We went and sat down by the flags. He said, um, I've been crying all day. He said, um, uh, one thing I'd said is that's just such a typical churchianity response, you know. She's in a better place. He said, my, my mom was dying of cancer, and uh, we prayed that she would get better, and uh, she died a month later. And he said, uh, uh, you know, we were all praying. She loved the Lord. The whole church was praying. Everybody was praying. And... Um, he said, when I came out of the hospital after she had died, and I said goodbye to her body, and I came out of the hospital, the first person I saw was my pastor. And my pastor said to me, well, she's in a better place, and uh, turned around and got back in his car and drove off. He said, I, I realized when he said that, uh, when you said what you said today in the DTS morning, he said, I realized that when he said that, I never grieved. I never got a chance to grieve because I felt guilty. How can I grieve when she's in a better place? And uh, he said, when you just spoke out, you know, that's just such a churchianity response and her kids don't feel that way. He said, I realized, technically it's true, she's in a better place. I'm sure she's up there with Jesus going, you know, don't grieve, I mean, I, this is fantastic. I, I'm sure, technically that's true. But we don't have to rush people to that conclusion. They need to go through that process of grieving. And he said, I've been crying all afternoon. Um, he said, because, you know, I, I, he said, I've just lived a very messy life. And I knew that I broke my mom's heart many times. And he said, I just wish that she could see that as a result of her death, I'm, I'm making better decisions, you know? I'm even here doing a DTS. He said, I wish, I wish she could see that, you know, I'm getting it right with God. I'm, I'm getting on track. You know, and it's true. He wishes she was there to see that. She wishes she was alive to see the transformation taking place in his life. And it's okay for him to grieve and to weep and to mourn. You know, Job's friends, they come to see Job. My favorite verse in Scripture. They come to see Job, and it says, And when they saw how bad things were, they just sat in silence for seven days. Listen, that is the best response you can have to somebody who's going through pain, is just to sit with them and shut up. And then Job's friends open their mouths, and, and you think maybe they should have just stayed in silence, you know, for 14 days instead of just seven. You know, I mean, they just need to be loved. And just do practical things for them. Can I, can I do your laundry for you? Can I wash your dishes? Do you need me to pay some bills? What, you know, what's going on? And just be there for them. You don't need to solve their problem and get them healed and all that stuff. That is the Holy Spirit's responsibility. And you just need to love them in their moment of pain. And, uh, and he said, I have been able, he said, I have been able 
He said she died like nine months ago. He said, I have been able to get through nine months of grief in one afternoon. He said, I just needed to tell you, I've been weeping and weeping and just telling God all this stuff, that all this pain and, and my anger at her passing away and my anger towards God. And I, he said, I've just let it all out. And he said, I just wanted to let you know, like half an hour ago, I just realized I've, I'm, the grief is done. I'm done. I was able to express it. And I was able to just get unload it. And the Lord just spoke to me and said, you know, this DTS is going to be such a time of healing for you now. Because we're just going to go through a time of healing. You know, and sometimes Christians say things like, you know, well, God helps those who help themselves. Well, you know, that's not in the Bible for one. Uh, it's not true. As a matter of fact, I would say the opposite is true. It says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, there was nothing we could do. There was nothing we could do. We were helpless. That's why we call him, you know, our savior. Or we say that he rescued us because we were drowning. And if he wouldn't have rescued us, we would have drowned. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, he did it already, uh, even though we were still sinners. You know, there's the other verse in, in Romans 3 where it says that this righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, we have all sinned and there was nothing we could do and it was only through Christ that we were able to have salvation. There was nothing we could do about it. Now I understand some people, they need to, they, like I said earlier, you need to be faithful to work hard and do the things God has called you to do and stuff like that. And in that sense, God comes alongside of us at that, provides for us and, and all that stuff because he sees that we're passing that test. But what I'm saying here is that sometimes there are people who are in such desperate straits and desperate situations, they don't know what to do. They, they're helpless. And our model is God, you know, who sent Jesus to us while we were still sinners. If we're going to talk about is God really good, the first thing we have to talk about is that you and I are not God. We have to admit, you and I are not God. The other thing that we have to admit is uh, we don't have eternal power, divine nature. Those are the qualities that make God, according to Romans chapter 1, which we might look at later. Uh, we don't see things as God sees them. We really don't. We, we, we might get a glimpse of something that the Lord lets us see, or he gives us a little piece of, our heart, of his heart on something or sometimes, but honestly, the reality is we don't see things like God sees them. It's like... You know, remember Jesus healed the lame man where they took apart the roof tiles and they lowered the guy down? And Jesus looks at him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And they get all upset and they all yell, blasphemy, this guy's blasphemous. And they say, blasphemy. But then when he heals the guy, they go, it says, oh, everybody was amazed and gave praise to God and they were filled with awe. And they said, we've seen remarkable things today. Uh, they hadn't seen anything. They'd missed the whole point. Jesus came and saw his spiritual condition and said he needs to be forgiven from sin. I imagine a lot of well-meaning people had come up to him and said things like, you know, the reason why you're lame is because of this, this, and this, you know. Or if you need to, you know, there's unconfessed sin or something, that's the reason why you're like this. Jesus looked at that and he said, this guy needs to know his sins 
are forgiven. This is the most powerful thing that we can ever do for anyone in their whole life. Is not to grow another leg or a missing finger comes back or, you know, they're blind and they can see. That's all interesting and great, but their body's going to die anyways. What's really exciting is for them to hear the message that their sin can be forgiven and they have relationship with God. You know, Marcia's, uh, one of Marcia's sons has, has cerebral palsy. His name's Ryan. You, you'll probably see him around here on campus. Great guy. And he is one of the most spiritually acute people I have ever met. And I remember when I was speaking in Indianapolis, and the questions he would ask is kind of like, what planet are you from? He just, he, he, he just had amazing, insightful questions in the things I was talking about. The amazing thing about him is he knows the forgiveness of God. He knows the love of God. He knows the grace of God. That's, that's what's so, I mean, Marsha can rest in the fact that someday when he dies, as we all will, that he'll go on to be with Jesus. I mean, as a parent, let me tell you, that is the thing you worry about most with your children is that they will know Jesus and that they will know God and that, they, that there's hope, you know, uh, for them. I, I, you know, my son uh, said to me one night when I was putting in bed, Daddy, you know, Jesus is in your heart, right? And I said, yeah. And, and Jesus is in Mom's heart. And I said, and, and she was there. She said, yeah. And he's like, well, I want Jesus in my heart. And I was like, oh, it's such a moment. <laughs> it's such an incredible moment. I remember um, Kiara, I got a Voxer message. I was speaking in, uh, in, in Montreal, and I get this Voxer message, and it's Kiara's voice, and she goes, Hi, Daddy, I just asked Jesus to come into my heart. Let me tell you, I mean, at that point, I could die and be happy because I know they've, they've got introduced. The relationship has started. Re re whatever happens, that relationship has started, and it's something that will be fostered. Uh, as long as I'm alive, we'll foster it and, and nurture it and, and see it grow. I, the other day I told them, you know, Andrew's five, Kiara's four. I said, you know, God just wants to speak to you. Um, we're, we're about to put them to bed. And I said, God just wants to speak to you, and he just wants to give you a picture of how he sees you. And so I said, I just want you to close your eyes, and God's going to give you a picture of how he sees you. And they both closed their eyes. And... Um, and I'm praying. I'm like, dear God Almighty, if you've ever given somebody a picture, <laughs> please give it to my children. And, uh, and so I said, okay, you can open your eyes. What picture did you get? And, and Kiara says, um, I saw a white tiger, a beautiful big white tiger in the forest. Dad. Now, she doesn't know when Hiran was pregnant. Uh, we didn't even know Hiran was pregnant. And, and her mom called us. Uh, Hiran's mom called us from the jungles on her satellite phone and said, are you pregnant? And Hidan said, no, I don't think so. And she said, no, I think you are, because I, I saw that you being pregnant, and I saw a white tiger. And so here's Kiara. The picture the Lord gave her was of a white tiger. And I just said, Kiara, let's just talk about a white tiger for a second. They're beautiful. They're unique. They're rare. You know, they're strong. They're powerful. And we just kind of talked about, you know, the qualities of a white tiger. And then I said, and Andrew, what picture did you get? And he's like, I saw a super, 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 super fast race car, Dad. <laughs> That's awesome. That's exactly Andrew. Um, you know, so God, God speaks to us. We don't see things as God sees them. That's the reality of it. We're not God. You and I are not God. And we don't see things uh, as God sees them. The other thing is that we're not completely good. We are not completely good. Now, you know, we're decent people. I get that. We're, we're good people. I don't think there's anybody here that's like a, you know, evil freak or anything. 
But in general, we're good people, but we are not completely good. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and that has colored our goodness. And so we are not completely good. So we think we might know what is good in a certain situation, but the reality is only God is good. Um, and I'll, at this point, I'll say this too. If God is not good, there's no hope for this world. What are you going to put your hope in? Uh, economic systems, they crash. Um, government systems, they crash. You know, um, churches, they split. You know, friends, they'll, they'll disappoint you because they're human. Uh, and so what are you going to put your hope in? If God is not good, there is no hope for this world. There's no hope. So let's look at the question because I want to answer it. Is God good? The first, is, the first thing is, yes, he's good because he says he's good. He says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Uh, he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So God says he's good. That's the first thing. He declares himself as good. And there's places in the scripture that says God is good. Not that he's kind of, you know, that goodness is in God, but he is good. That actually defines his character. Um, and people testify to, to God being good. There are lots of people who testify to the goodness of God. Uh, this is a picture of a rally that we had of about 25,000 people. Uh, half of the people were from France and half of them were from England. And we met in England and they were asking for forgiveness for the sins of France and England. It was a very powerful uh, time. People just testifying to God's goodness. David writes here, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. He's good and his love endures forever. I like this one. You are good and what you do is good. <laughs> so teach me your decrees. I like that. What, you know, you're good and what you do is good. So I need to learn from you. You know, I, I got I to gotta learn from you, Lord, because, because you're good and what you do is good. Let's look at some of these intellectual paths for a second. My mother was dying. She prayed she, we prayed she would be healed. What was the expectation? Was the expectation that she would never die? Because that's not going to happen, most likely. There's, I think, what, two or three people in Scripture didn't die. But, uh, you know, uh, they were just taken straight up into heaven like Elijah the prophet in the chariot, you know, and Enoch, I think, or whatever. But, you know, what was the expectation? Was the, was the expectation or the hope that, that God would extend their life? Okay, well, we have, we have biblical precedents for that, where God extends people's lives. One of the people's lives that he extended was the life of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was king of Judah. He was very sick, and the prophet told him, you're going to die. And Hezekiah turned to the wall uh, on his bed, and he began pleading with God not to let him die. Finally, after just lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of pleading, God said, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. And do you know that was the worst 15 years of Hezekiah's life? He went through more heartbreak in those 15 years than he had in his entire life. He saw his sons lose the kingdom. He saw them turn their backs on God. He saw the nation turn their backs on God. Everything that he had taught was being tossed aside. Everything that he had invested in had fallen apart. And you could see that he just was in grief for those 15 years. I am sure that when he looked back over those 15 years, he was ready to go. When God said, hey, your 15 years are up, he's like, thank you. 
You know, because I think one of the things God wanted to spare him from was seeing all of that. Um, then people say, well, what about poverty or rich people who are very corrupt? There's poor people who are corrupt too, by the way. Uh, selfish politicians or unjust laws or all that kind of stuff. You know, are these God problems or are they sin problems? They're sin problems. Let me ask you something. How many, how many celebrities have you seen pose with poor black ch children in the neighborhood right next to them? Anybody? No. They'll go to a different continent and pose with you know, children in that village, but what about right next to them? They don't want to do that because that means there's you know, some kind of a responsibility there. Let me tell you something. God already gave us a solution for poverty. It's in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders, miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good. they gave, goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, it doesn't say selling all their possessions and good, by the way, but just selling their possessions and good. They used the profits from that to give to anyone as he had need. So there we go. So poverty solved. What's the next big world crisis we have? Now, this is not communism or socialism. Socialism is demonic, so is communism. Those are, this is not communism or socialism. This is not enforced by a government. This is, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit in response to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, to prayer, the apostles' teaching. It's a movement of the Holy Spirit among the people of God to take care of people's needs. People like socialism and stuff like that because they say, oh, it's much better for us to just cut a check to the government and then we don't have to worry about it or take any responsibilities ourselves. Like a few people in Washington can handle the poverty in this nation? How on earth do we expect that to happen? And so God has already answered that problem. And then we have, you know, natural disasters. I want to tell you, natural disasters are mostly the, the, the laws of the universe that govern nature. If I throw something up, it comes down. There's, there's laws that govern nature that God has ordained and set up. And most natural disasters are a result of those laws in motion. Um, and so, you know, it becomes a natural disaster when somebody dies, right? If we have a hurricane and nobody dies, it's just a hurricane. But if we have a hurricane and like a thousand people die, it's like a huge natural disaster. Uh, and so that's kind of interesting because there's lots of things that happen in the world that are just part of kind of the earth's burping. And uh, it's just kind of the natural, you know, things in motion. And we don't call those natural disasters because they haven't affected people. But when they affect people, we call them natural disasters and want to blame God. Well, <coughs> it's a natural disaster for the person that's in that disaster. Um, but here's what I have to say about that, is that I don't know, there's sometimes in scripture where God uses natural disasters for a purpose, you know, an earthquake to swallow some guys who are rebelling against Moses, you know, <clears throat> the hails to kill the army or whatever, stuff like that. There's times where God uses natural disasters, but I'm not God. So it's not my job to, to, to say whether or not a particular natural disaster is a judgment of God. I don't know. But I will say this, that God never has intended for humanity to suffer pointlessly or endlessly. God has never intended humanity to suffer pointlessly or endlessly. 
That's why the desert experiences, we can emerge from those in the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> That's why challenging times, we can emerge from those. <clears throat> That's why David writes, I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Whatever the suffering is, God has never intended it to suffer pointlessly or endlessly. Even Job, God set limits on how much Job could suffer. You can't kill him, he told Satan. You can't kill him. He set limits. And there was a point. It was a test. And God was confident Job was going to pass the test. So there was a point to his suffering. And it wasn't forever. After Job's period of suffering, God blessed him more than he had, than he had before. So there was, it was not an endless suffering. And also, he expects his children to be the arms of compassion and mercy during, uh, to those who are in desperate need. <clears throat> I love that guy, Monty, in Indonesia, uh, you know, who said uh, when the tsunami hit Indonesia, and he said, you know, you Christians are confusing to me because the Buddhists come here and they help the Buddhists, and the Muslims come here and they help the Muslims. He's like, but you Christians, you come and you just help everybody, <laughs> you know? We, we, are, we are to be God's arms uh, of compassion and mercy to those who are in desperate need. Not to question why the natural disaster happened or was this judgment or whatever. What we know is when there's a natural disaster, we should be responding uh, because it's a great opportunity for us to be God's arms of compassion and mercy to those who are in desperate need. I'm just laying some foundation before we go into spiritual warfare. And I'm going to continue to lay some more foundation tomorrow because I think there's such a, um, um, uh, a kind of a movement in spiritual warfare where we just either tend to blame God or we blame Satan or we blame demons or we blame, you know, whatever it is. And it's not really spiritual warfare. That stuff isn't spiritual warfare in the sense that it isn't spiritual warfare in where we need to do some rebuking and some, you know, that kind of stuff. It's more the warfare that happens in our hearts and in our minds. Tomorrow we're going to talk more about mindsets and thoughts and attitudes of the heart, motivation and that kind of stuff, uh, fear and control versus love and freedom. We're going to talk about some of those things tomorrow. And tomorrow I'm going to give you the most powerful illustration of a person who said, who went through, I think, one of the most... Uh, uh, difficult, desertish, uh, horrible times of suffering I've ever heard about, other than Jesus, and and his dying words were. I'll tell you tomorrow. It's uh, time for lunch break, so we'll um, break for lunch. And uh, I love you guys so much. We'll see you tomorrow. Bon appetit. Enjoy your lunch. Yeah.